having learned that the first two chapters chiefly focus upon doctrine, we have that which follows on from that, which is the duty of the Christian in light of that doctrine. Our belief should affect our behaviour. What we say we accept to be true ought to make a difference, and it will make a difference in the way that we live. Now in this portion, the Apostle talks about the need for true Christians to manifest openly in their lives the great change that has taken place in their hearts. Now we talk about this from verse 5 to verse 9 of chapter 3, that we must as believers disown the old life of the sinner. There are things that have to change and there are things that will change when you become a Christian. You see that word that's used in verse 5? The first word of the text is mortify. It's a word that we have emphasized that has to do with death. You'll be familiar with the term mortuary or the term mortician. A mortician deals with death, with corpses. So when it says mortify your members which are upon the earth, uh, he is using personification here when he says your members which upon the earth are fornication, uncleanness and so on. Well obviously they're not the members of your body. The members of your body are those things that commit those sins. And so when he says put to death your members which are upon the earth, He's referring to what Jesus talked about when he said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. In other words, I don't want you to mutilate yourself and make yourself blind, but I want you to deal with the sin that's committed by the eye. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Deal with that which is causing the sin through the eye gate. Right? And then the same is true of your ears, the same is true of your hands, your feet. All the members of your body that we use to commit sin, he says we are to mortify them. We're to put them to death. In other words, you're to deny the old life of the sinner. We talk about the works of the flesh in verse 5. They're listed there. And we also talk about the words of the flesh in verses 8 and 9. And here, especially the sins of the tongue are emphasized. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, lying. All of these are to be put off because they belong to the old life. We're to disown the old life of the sinner, but then we are also to display the new life of the saint. From verse 10, he says, let's read verse 9, saying you have put off the old man, with his deeds, and have put on the new man. It's a bit like garments or clothing. We use that illustration of you know, getting up in the morning, putting off your pajamas and putting on your clothes for the day, putting on the new garments. Same thing at night, take off the old garments, or if you have to change out of your work clothes into decent clothes, you put off the old clothes, the old dirty garments, and you put on the clean ones. That's what he's talking about here. You put off the old man, that which belongs to the old sinful life, before you were converted, and you put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. The new man is like God. Now when we read from verse 10 down to verse 14, we see that 
There is this display of the new life of the saint. God has made all things new when he saved us. He's made all things new. There's a little chorus which says, things are different now. Something happened to me when I gave my life to Jesus. Things I loved before have passed away. Things I love far more have come to stay. Things are different now. Something happened to me since I gave my life to him. There's newness of life. And we have to display this on a daily basis. Believers, we noted last time, have a new identity. They have a new unity. And they have a new destiny. The Christian is not to be a put-on. You know what a put-on is? Somebody that's not real. It's somebody that's not genuine. A hypocrite. The old word from which we get the English word hypocrite from the Greek referred to someone who acted a part on a stage in a play, for example, usually wearing a mask. In other words, they were pretending to be somebody that they were not. That's a hypocrite. We're not to be hypocrites. We're not to be put-ons. A pretender without the reality. However, while we're not to be a put-on, we are as believers commanded to put on some things. From verse 12 you notice what these are. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. We'll explain these in a moment. Kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which as we know means love, which is the bond of perfectness. These are the things we're to put on as we display the new life of the Christian. Here's the adornment of the Christian. There are basically two great themes that are brought to our attention in these verses. Things that concern Christian believers, those who profess to be the Lord's people. The first one is, how true Christians can be addressed. In other words, how they are described. What is the way in which God addresses His true people? Well, look at verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. There's the first way in which believers may be addressed. They are privileged in Christ. The privileged. The word elect is a simple word that means chosen. Chosen. We know what an election is, don't we? An election is when you choose a candidate. God has made a choice of his people. Now, I understand that this is a very controversial doctrine to some people. It ought not to be. There's nothing controversial really about it when you consider what the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation. But there are folks who just don't like that word, elect. They don't like that word, election. They don't like the word, predestination. But those are Bible words. Those are words that are found in the Scripture. 
These are words that are used even by the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider, for example, Luke chapter 18 and verse 7, where Jesus is talking about prayer and says, And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? God will avenge his own elect, his own chosen ones. That's what the word means. Again, you'll see this in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 8 and verse 33. The word is used. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect or God's chosen ones? Again, the next chapter, Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Speaking of these two men, the sons of Isaac and Rebekah, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Election. Choice. That's what it refers to, God's choice. And this is a word that is used, and and companion words are used throughout the New Testament. 2 Timothy, chapter number 2 and verse 10. Paul says, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you. The idea is, elected you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Believers are privileged in Christ. We must emphasize that election is all of God and it's all of grace. We are chosen, according to Ephesians 1 verse 4, in Christ. Robert Murray McShane wrote those lovely words that we often sing in that hymn. Chosen not for good in me. Wakened up from wrath to flee. Hidden in the Savior's side. By the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. Chosen not for good in me. The Lord did not look upon the mass of humanity and look upon us and say, He would be a good one to be my chosen. That one would be a good one to be my chosen. There's something really good about him. There's something really desirable about her. No! Absolutely not. There is no difference at all between those who are God's elect and those who we might describe as the non-elect. The only difference is God's choice. We are privileged in Christ. Those words come to mind of that hymn that I often like to quote. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice, they would rather starve than come. T'was the same grace that spread the feast, that sweetly forced me in. Else I had still refused to taste and perished in my sin. In other words, I'm just like everybody else. And all the difference has been made by God's own choice. 
That's a very humbling thing. I've heard preachers say, you know, God must have seen something really special in me to choose me. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. God didn't see anything in you. God didn't see anything in me. God didn't see my potential or your potential. What utter nonsense is that? There is no reason outside of God's own purpose why he should set his electing love upon us. See, well, that's a scary doctrine. That's a frightening doctrine. You mean there are people that are chosen? Yes. Well, who are those that are chosen? Well, let's hear what the Lord Jesus Christ said about this in a lovely scripture, one that has meant a lot to me in my life. John's Gospel, chapter 6. In John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus discusses, actually, the doctrine of election. He uses this terminology in John 6, 37. Look at it carefully. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Now, you look at that verse and you think about the first statement. All that the Father giveth me. What does that mean? Well, if you look at other parts of the scripture, you'll see that the Lord Jesus explains that there are those that have been given to him from eternity. Verse verse 39 of the same chapter, This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Now, if you were to go to John chapter 17, you'll see this is further explained. When the Lord, in his great prayer, talks to his Father about those that have been given to him. He uses that term in John 17 verse 2. As thou hast given him, that's Christ, power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to who? To as many as thou hast given him. In verse 6 he says, I've manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. And this is something that he continues to speak about. Verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine. Again in verse 11 he speaks of them. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. Verse 12, those that thou gavest me I have kept. Now, what does this mean? Those that thou hast given me. It means back in eternity, in the counsels of God, before creation. There was a people out of the mass of fallen humanity yet to be created who were given to Jesus Christ in covenant. He agreed that he would come to this earth, he would be born, he would live their life for them, a life of perfect obedience to God's law. He would die on the cross bearing the penalty of their sin. He would rise for them, he would be exalted to God's throne for them. He would come and receive them eventually to himself and they would live for, with him forever in heaven. They're described as those whom thou hast given me. 
Now here's the question. How can I know that I'm one of them? And that's a question that really bothers a lot of people. Obviously it would bother you when you first think about it. There's a, there's a chosen people. Am I one of them? Well, look at the text again. John six thirty seven. Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me, and we've established who they are, they're a people given to Him in covenant from eternity. What does He say? Shall come to me. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And then there's this, And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. My late pastor used to say, this text is a bit, like, a bit like a dagger. It has a handle and it has a blade. And a lot of people want to take the text by the blade. And they want to focus in on all that the Father giveth me. And wondering if they're elect. Wondering if they're chosen. They said what they need to do is take the text by the handle. What is that? Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. You know what that means in no wise? It means under no circumstances. How how can I know that I'm one of God's chosen? The answer is in this, him that cometh to me. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That's how you know that they're elect. They come to Christ. There are millions who never come to Christ. But if you come to Christ, come to Him with all your sin, Lay your sins on Jesus. He'll take those sins away. You'll be His. And you'll find out that when you went through that door that said on the outside, Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. When you go inside the door, it says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you truly come to the Lord in repentance and faith, He will not cast you out. You can know that you're one of God's elect. And what a privilege that is. This is why the Bible talks about making your calling and election sure. Don't get them the wrong way round. Far too many people are trying to make their election and then their calling sure. No. Have you been called by God in grace? Have you come to Him responding to the gospel invitation. You've come to Him. Yes, Lord, save me. Wash me from my sins. Take my sins away. Help me to live for Thee. I want to be different from now on. I want to be Your servant. I don't want to be the devil's servant anymore. I want to follow after Thee. If that's what You've said, the Lord Jesus said, I will give you rest. Thy sins be forgiven thee. That's your calling. You've been called. And therefore you can make your election sure. You know you're one of God's chosen. Privileged in Christ. But we must move on. These true Christians are identified in this way because they're addressed as those that are purified in Christ. They're privileged. He uses the term the elect of God. But then he says, holy and beloved. Holy. They're purified in Christ. What does that mean, holy? Well, it's referring to the fact that God has done a work of grace in them and he has 
viewed them in Christ. He does view them now in Christ as holy ones. Those that are set apart. That's what the word holy really signifies. Set apart. Purified in Christ. There is a verse in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. Which says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, holy brethren, people that are set apart. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. We read there, concerning this vile company, Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves, of mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. He said, they'll not inherit the kingdom of God. But verse 11, and such were some of you. That congregation at Corinth was full of people who were once profligate and wicked sinners. He says, such were some of you, but you're washed. But you're sanctified. You're now rendered reckoned holy but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God you're purified in Christ you're righteous in Christ 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 19 God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. What does that mean, not imputing their trespasses unto them? It means not reckoning or counting their sins against their name any longer. It means to come before the court of God, the charges be read out, and you're rendered not guilty. Because your sins have been removed by Jesus Christ. How can true Christians be addressed? They're privileged in Christ, the elect of God. They're purified in Christ, they're holy. They are precious to Christ. Because he adds this, holy and beloved. Beloved. Much loved is the idea. Whenever the Lord spoke to Jeremiah about his love for him, He referred to it in terms of that which is everlasting. When my wife and I were married just over 42 years ago, hard to believe, one of the hymns we chose out for our wedding was Loved with Everlasting Love. Led by grace, that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. One of the lines in that hymn is concerning how that everything is now different. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Since I know as now I know, I am His and He is mine. Loved with everlasting love. It comes from Jeremiah 31.3 The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, have I drawn thee 
You know why the Lord brought you to himself in salvation? You know why he spoke to you and caused you to turn from your sin and believe on him? Because he loved you from eternity. That's why. He says it here. I have loved thee with everlasting love. A love that never had any beginning. Therefore, because of this, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. That's why I brought you to myself. Because I chose you. You're back to election again. Precious to Christ. Romans chapter 8 asks a whole series of questions. Romans 8 from verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is there anything in heaven or earth or hell that can actually separate us from Christ's love? Is there anything that can stop him from loving us? He asks the question, shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Verse 37, nay, or no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, and I made this point at our prayer meeting, that it doesn't say life first and then death, as we would expect. It's neither death nor life, that means life after death. Not which happens in eternity. Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Things on this earth, things in the next life. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing that will make you, believer, no longer precious to Christ. Because as John 17.23 points out, the people of God are loved by God even as Christ is loved. Thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. True Christians can be addressed as those that are privileged. They're the elect of God. They're purified in Christ. They're holy. They're precious to Christ. They're beloved. And thank God they're pardoned by Christ. Colossians 3, verse 13. They're pardoned by Christ. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Even as Christ forgave you. God's people have been forgiven. There were a number of times in the New Testament where Jesus met poor souls that were sick and suffering. But the greatest problem that they had was not their physical ailment, but their sin. And that is why you have heard the Lord say to the man sick of the palsy and to the woman who was a sinner, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Why could he say that? Because he's God. He's the only one who can pronounce your sins forgiven. He can, he's the only one who can assure you of your sins being forgiven. And that's one of the reasons why I never tell people for sure that they're saved. That's not my business. My business is not to tell you that you're saved. I don't know that you're saved. You could be pulling the wool over my eyes. 
I can't see into your heart. I can only take a profession for what it is. I can judge your life by what I think is a a standard of Scripture and, and make a judgment according and say, yeah, I believe that person is a brother in Christ. And there's nothing wrong with that either because when Saul of Tarsus was first converted, you know what Ananias said to him? Brother Saul! He wasn't afraid to say, I know you're a Christian. Brother Saul. So I can say that to you, brother, sister. But I'm using a judgment of charity. Because I can't see your heart. The Bible says, the Lord knoweth them that are His. That's why I never tell people, look, I know that you're saved. Because I can't tell you that. You know who will tell you that you're saved? The Lord. The Lord. He'll assure your heart. He will pour into your heart the assurance of salvation. It's the Lord who says, Thy sins be forgiven thee. I want the Lord to say to my heart, I am thy salvation. And he does. Pardoned through Christ. What does it mean to be forgiven? It means to have every last sin taken away. Isn't this the assurance that was given in the book of Hebrews? If you read chapter 10, in verse 17, it clearly says, quoting the Old Testament, And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. An old fellow from the brethren once, the Lord bless him, said to me, he says, you know, son, and I was a young man at the time, he says, some people say God forgets your sins. But I want to tell you that God doesn't forget your sins. And I was a bit peeved at that at first. He said, let me explain. God doesn't forget your sins. He puts them out of his mind. He said, because if God forgot something, there's always a possibility, isn't there, that sometime in the future he would remember it again. So if the Bible merely said that God forgets your sins, that would not be a strong enough assurance for me, because he might just remember, though being God he will never be guilty of imperfection. He can't forget anyway. But it's stronger than that, isn't it? Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. He will never remember our sins against us anymore. Oh, I remember them. I remember them. And I'll tell you who else remembers them. The devil. The devil remembers my sins. And he brings them up before my face. And he'll tell me, what about this? And what about that? And what about the other thing? But I go to the Lord and say, Lord, what about these sins? And the Lord says, what sins are you talking about? I don't remember. I don't remember them. They're gone. When I was a little boy, we used to sing some really great choruses. We used to learn some of them here in this church. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally, praise God. My sins are gone. Is that your assurance? 
Can you say tonight that you're privileged in Christ, that you're purified in Christ, that you're precious to Christ, that you're pardoned by Christ? How true Christians can be addressed. Very quickly, how true Christians should be adorned. We talk about putting off and putting on. The way that we live and behave, Paul likens this to the wearing of certain items of clothing. You know when you come to Christ for salvation, he clothes you. We have a picture of that, don't we, in the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, the prodigal leaves the father's house. He goes to the far country. He wastes his substance with riotous living. He spends all his living, as his elder brother said, on harlots. He comes back to the father's house. He wants to be accepted as a servant. The father says, no, you're not just going to be a servant. You're back here as my son. He accepts him fully. And totally when he says, I have sinned before heaven and in thy sight. And what does the father do? He calls on his servants to bring the best robe. Bring the best robe. And put it on my son. You find this as well in the parable of the wedding garment. A garment was provided for the guests. The Lord has provided us with a garment that allows us to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The garments that the Lord gives to us are those that replace the filthy garments that he takes away as he did with Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3. He was clothed with a change of garments. That's what happens to us when we're saved. We put off and we put on. The garments are described in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 as the garments of salvation. As it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness provided by the Lord Jesus. The old saying is, you can judge a man by his clothes. Well, that's not always true, but it's true spiritually. It's true spiritually. We're adorned with spiritual clothing that the Lord has provided for us. And these spiritual garments are listed by Paul here in Colossians chapter 3. Let's go through them very quickly. He uses a rather quaint old English term here in Colossians 3. Bowels of mercies. Interesting that, isn't it? Put on, verse 12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. The reason he does that is because the Greeks always identified the source of affection as being the intestines. The inner body. We talk about the heart. The Greeks used to talk about the intestines. We sometimes talk about intestinal fortitude. But when you talk about bowels of mercies, it's referring to that which we refer to when we speak about the heart. It expresses the deepest feelings of humanity. You could say emotions of pity. 
or hearts that are easily stirred to compassion. That's the way the Lord wants us to be. It's the opposite of harshness. Having a heart for people. Oh, that we might have a heart for people. As the hymn puts it, a heart like thine, a heart divine, a heart as white as snow. On me, dear Lord, a heart like this bestow. Bowels of mercies. Kindness. That's the next thing listed. Kindness. We know what that is, don't we? The idea behind the word in the Greek language is a cordial which has matured and lost its harshness. It's become mellow to taste. It's translated in Galatians 5.22 as one of the fruit of the Spirit as gentleness. That's a gracious disposition. That's Christian disposition. Kindness. And then you've got this one. Humbleness of mind. One preacher called this a cap for the head of the Christian. Let me tell you that humbleness of mind was something that was treated with contempt as a quality by the Greeks. They saw that as a weakness if you were humble. But Paul, quoting from Philippians 2 verse 8, spoke of this as a quality that's Christ-like. Having the mind of Christ, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, that which we celebrate at communion. God hates arrogance and he hates pride. But it gives grace to the humble. Now what is humility? Humility really is thinking of others first before yourself. And that is a very rare quality in our society, is it not? Humbleness of mind. I read of a pastor once who won a medal for being the most humble pastor in his denomination. But the denomination took the medal away from him two weeks later because he insisted on wearing it. Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. That's the attitude that the Lord doesn't want us to have. He gives grace to the humble, 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6. So we're to put others first before ourselves. Humbleness of mind. And then there's meekness. Now, meekness is not weakness. Let me emphasize that. Meekness is not weakness. This word meekness among the Greeks... Uh, referred in some instances to a, a colt that had been broken. You know, a horse can be a wild thing. And it's strong and willful. But when it's broken and tamed, you know what that is? That's power under control. And that's what meekness is. Moses was described in Numbers 12 verse 3 as the meekest man on the face of the earth. And that was not weakness, because Moses was capable of being angry, as we see illustrated in the Scripture. The Lord Jesus spoke about meekness in Matthew 11, from verse 28 onwards. He said, I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest under your souls. Get that picture of the wild horse that has been tamed. Strength under control. That's what we need in our dealings with others. Meekness. Meekness is when someone says something really nasty to you and you could, you could have a comeback, but you don't. You just bring it under control. Meekness. Long-suffering really means being long-tempered. A readiness to endure grief, suffering, 
wrongfully. It, it really is tantamount to, to patience. Being long-tempered. I find this very convicting, especially when I'm driving. My wife has to remind me of this all the time. Patience. Someone said, if you get worked up on the inside, go to God and pour out your heart. This will keep you from pouring out your bad feelings toward others. Give it to the Lord. Long-suffering. How about forbearing? That's another word that's used here. This is another thing that we're to be adorned with. Forbearing. One minister said, there are two bears that are to be in every Christian's life. Bear and forbear. It means to put up with each other. Sometimes you have to do that, you know. Put up with each other. Because none of us is perfect. Even in the church. We're not perfect. One guy had a bumper sticker on his car and it said, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm so close it scares me. But he wasn't perfect. And neither am I. And neither are you. And we must try with God's help to endure the frustrating ways of other people. Even other Christians. It's not easy. But by God's help we have to be forbearing even when others are overbearing. And then there's forgiving. Again, we've mentioned this in relation to our salvation. Verse 13. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. Forgiving one another. Sometimes that can be really difficult. And you'll hear people say, yeah, well, I'll forgive you, but I'll not forget. Oh, wait a minute. Are you really forgiving? Look at the greatest example of forgiveness in the Bible. It's the Lord himself. We're to forgive one another, Ephesians 4.32, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. We learn the Lord's Prayer often when we're little. And it's a good prayer to learn. I'm not a fan of churches saying the Lord's Prayer, but there's nothing actually really wrong with it. It's Scripture. It's just that the Lord doesn't want us just to repeat prayers like that as if that's praying, because it's not, necessarily. But I think it's a good thing when our children are little to teach them the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things in the Lord's Prayer is, forgive us. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our sins. But that's not all. Even as we forgive those that trespass against us. Sometimes it's through clenched teeth that we say that. Now think of the things that God has forgiven us for. If I were to enumerate all the things that the Lord has forgiven me of, I could never ever say to another person, I'm not going to forgive you. Think of our Savior on the cross. One of the great sayings from the cross was what? Father, forgive them. Forgive them. For they know not what they do. The thing is, you see, I was there and you were there putting him on the tree. Our sins put him on the cross. Each of my crimes became a nail. An unbelief, the spear, as a hymn puts it. We were there. We were one of those soldiers holding him down and nailing him to that tree. And like them, we hear those words 
When we come to him for salvation, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgiving one another. And of course, it's all held together here by love because verse 14 is the capstone to this. Above all these things, here is the final clincher. Put on charity or love, which is the bond of perfectness. This is the bond. Someone called it the girdle or the belt holding all the garments together. This is the crowning grace in our adornment. Love. You know that love covers a multitude of sins? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and it's the great love chapter of the New Testament. And one of the things it says about love is that love is that which loves the truth and doesn't regard iniquity. Some people forget that. But it's very important for us to remember it. It says, love, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 13, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. So it is loving, it's the most loving thing in the world to tell people the truth. But note with me, it is above all. Literally it means over all. The belt, if you like, which holds everything together in the adornment of the Christian. If all these things that I've just mentioned are put on, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing and forgiving, if all these things are put on, then we are dressed completely as Christians. This is the adornment of the believer. May the Lord help us to put off the old clothes and to put on the new and to be adorned always as becometh a profession of the gospel. May the Lord help us. Amen.